celebration and all that it represents for us as the body of Christ to see so many lives, so many souls uh, impacted by making a decision to follow Jesus and to seal the deal. Somebody say seal the deal. Uh, give me one second. I'm going to log in real quick. Um, baptism really is that invitation to seal the deal. And what I mean by that is it's an opportunity to respond to what God has already been up to, right? Baptism is that moment where we simply say we are choosing to follow Jesus and we want to make sure that we publicly declare that choice and that decision by getting into the water. Um, that's a tradition that has carried forward. Jesus himself par uh, participated in that tradition by being baptized. He didn't need to be baptized because baptism, we know, is a decision to turn from sin. And we all know that Jesus uh, never sinned. But he did it to set an example for those of us who do carry that sin curse on us to essentially say we're dying to that so that we could be raised again into new life. Um, I think one of my favorite, I've got a few uh, favorite baptism stories. Having grown up in the church, I grew up, I don't think there's been like hardly ever a Sunday that I wasn't probably in this church or some other church if I was traveling somewhere. Um, but growing up in the church, I've seen a lot of things. Uh, one of my favorites, and my dad's not here right now, so I'll just tell the story while he's uh, traveling, seeing my brother up in Washington. Um, one, of the, one time we decided to go do baptisms in Redondo Beach, and we invited those who are being baptized down there. And I think I was about 14 years old. And, uh, and so we were down there in the water next to Avenue C, inviting those who were making a decision for Christ into the waves to be baptized in the salt water. And one of the big waves came because some of those waves at Redondo can get kind of big, you know, and they crashed right onto the shore. And so as Pastor Isaac was baptizing people, he got slammed onto the sand. And he got up and, and his glasses were gone. And he's like, Cobra, quick, look for the glasses, look for the glasses. We looked around like 10, 15 minutes, like, you know, um, unsuccessfully around the sand of Redondo Beach to find his glasses and couldn't find them. So then he turns to me and hands me the keys to his Ford car, and he goes, all right, you're driving us home. <laughs> Thank God it's a straight shot down Torrance Boulevard. All I had to do was figure out red and green lights, and then I got home. Um, but that was an interesting experience as a 14-year-old. Sorry if there's any police officers here in the house. We uh, Give us grace. God's giving you grace. Give us grace, okay? Amen. Uh, so that was one of my favorite uh, baptism stories. And then probably up there, too, in my top five, and I, I shared this story recently because it's like, really ingrained into my memory because it, it really does solidify the beauty of this moment today that we just celebrated. We did baptisms in a pool not too long ago, a few years back, and one of the brothers, Derek Caldwell, um, who was you know, new to the Lord, new to church, new to Christ, new to the Bible, new to a whole bunch of things. You know, it's, Have you ever seen somebody on fire for God because the truth of what God has done just all of a sudden clicked and it began to sink in? And it's like everything just makes sense now. Like the blue sky makes sense. The sunrise and the sunset makes sense, right? Relationships make sense. Family makes sense. Work makes sense, right? All these things begin to click together when finally you surrender to the Lord and he opens up our eyes and our spiritual eyes to see the, the way things really are as opposed to the way our, our, our eyes are trained to see them when we're not walking in Christ. And so, man, he was just walking in this brand new freedom, this brand new excitement about uh, loving Jesus. And so when we, we said we were doing baptism, like his, his fingertips were touching the ceiling because he was like, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, I'm ready. And uh, we went and do, to do these baptisms in the pool. And so I was in the pool getting ready to baptize. 
and you know, each person's coming up, and it's, it's you know, it's kind of like a, a happy, but it's also like a solemn, reverent moment, right? Because we're celebrating lives transformed by Jesus, and so everybody was saying why they're being baptized, and and all of a sudden, you know, we call, okay, brother Derek, you're up next, and he goes running from where he was seated, and he just does a big swan dive belly flop into the pool. And it was one of those hilarious, hilariously beautiful moments in the church for me personally, because that's not typically how we do baptisms. But then I walked away from that day thinking maybe that's how every baptism should be, because he was just so excited about Jesus being the center of his life and learning that his sin had been forgiven and learning he had a new relationship with God and he's a child of God and God's got a hope for him and a hope for all eternity and he couldn't contain it so all he could do was do a swan dive and a belly flop into a pool to show his exuberance for Christ. And I was just thinking to myself, man, that, that is baptism right there. Right? Doesn't it feel good to be free in Christ? To know that our sin is forgiven, our past is taken care of, and our future is in his hands. So we walk in the present confidently knowing that our God is with us, whether we're in the valley of the shadow of death or on a mountaintop. We are never alone once we've surrendered our life to Jesus. Worry and fear has no place. I don't know if there's anything more consistent throughout scriptures than an angel or God or Jesus himself looking at people trying to follow him and saying, fear not, for I am with you. So if you have fear today, give it to the Lord. Is it okay to be concerned? Yeah, that just means you're human. But if you got fear, give it to the Lord. Because God is on your side. Romans 8 says it this way. If our God is for us, then who can be against us? Right? I love it. I love watching my kids, and, and I love being the, the father figure for them and letting them know that if, as long as they're with dad, everything's going to be all right. We took a couple of days of vacation over the kids' spring break, and we went down a big water slide, and it was Ruthie's first time. She was a little nervous, and I said, hey, look, hold on really tight to that handle on this little raft, and then with your other hand, put it on this handle. I'm going to put my hand right over your hand, and we're going to go down this big slide together. You sure, dad? Yep, I'm sure. You sure, dad? Yep, I'm sure. All right, I'll do it, right? And we go down this thing together. I love those moments because it's teaching her and training her that she could place her faith first in her earthly dad, but then, of course, ultimately in her heavenly father, right? No matter what life may bring her way, she could trust God with scary things because our God is a big God, and he's mighty, and he's able to save. He's able to rescue. Amen? So what we're celebrating here today in my opinion, is even more special. And I know we've been talking a little bit about this over the course of some sermons, but what we celebrated here today is probably one of the most special miracles that we could encounter, right? Because if you got like a twisted arm and God touches your arm and all of a sudden it's straight, well, guess what? That arm is going to go be put into, you know, a, a, a casket in a grave, hopefully a hundred years from now. But your soul, that's the one thing that lasts forever. So we celebrate Eternal miracle. Somebody say amen. amen. If your sight is corrected, that's not an eternal miracle. If your legs are corrected, that's not an eternal miracle. If you said get up and walk, that's not an eternal miracle. But what's an eternal miracle is what God does in our hearts. Right? And when he reminds us that, that there's a new direction for us. Um, so today we're going to be focusing on one of the stories. One of the stories of what Jesus did after he was raised again from the dead on the third day. 
Um, he did a few things that's recorded in Scripture. And so we find that the, in history, last week we celebrated Easter, Resurrection Sunday, we celebrated the truth of the empty tomb and what that means for us in our faith, right? What that means for us is that Jesus is alive. Somebody say, Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive, and so we celebrate that, and, and the Bible shares with us stories about what he did and said post-resurrection. Before he ascended to heaven, he was still walking on earth and showing up to his disciples and in some ways readying them and preparing them for the next stage of their ministry, right? Uh, I'd like to call Jesus' preparation moment of his disciples as uh, a strategic absence. Everybody say strategic absence, Right, So just a moment ago, I shared a brief story about you know, giving Ruthie courage to go down a big water slide, and that's strategic presence. So as moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, coaches, teachers, pastors, it's important for us to know how to have strategic presence. Strategic presence means we're at the right place at the right time to make sure that we're encouraging those around us that we're trying to raise up in life and in ministry. Strategic presence mean when I'm there with my baby girl and I'm telling her, don't worry, if anything happens, it's going to happen to both of us and daddy's got you, right? We're good. We're okay. It's being at the right place at the right time to offer strategic presence, right? Uh, sometimes that could mean being at the game, the important game. Maybe that could mean being at graduation. Maybe that could mean being at the award ceremony, whatever it may be that God has called us to have strategic presence, Okay. Um, my dad is pretty good at that all of, all of my whole life. I always knew where my dad was because he's the loudest person in any group of people I've ever been in. Right. All right, mijo. There, my dad's over there. You guys, he's over there in that section. I just heard him. Right. I don't care if he's showing up like to a Carson high baseball game or one of my university games. You could hear him through the, you could hear him through the marching band, right? Marching bands playing some song and all of a sudden, okay, come on. All right. My dad's over there. You guys, he's over there. He's in the third row. Yep. He's right there. You see him with the sombra, with the, the big sun hat on. It's nighttime, but he's got the sun hat on and the sunglasses. I guess he's from Keystone or from South Bay or something like that. Strategic presence. Somebody say strategic presence. That means being in the right place at the right time for the right reason, right? And when we have strategic presence, we, we give encouragement to those who are drawing their strength from our presence. And the cool thing about it is we are, we're able to offer strategic presence because God has offered us strategic presence, right? I love Psalm 23 because it reminds us no matter where you go, no matter what you do, I'll be right here. I'm like a good shepherd, right? Um, so our Heavenly Father gives us strategic presence. But as we begin to shift in this post-resurrection reality, Jesus begins to teach his disciples of the significance of strategic absence. Somebody say strategic absence. Some of you might be thinking, well, how can you, how can you be strategic and how is absence helpful? Isn't presence really where it should be? And I, I learned as a dad, right, that every once in a while it's kind of helpful. Um, sometimes I have to nudge Drea because I'm the youngest of three, right? So I grew up kind of like, you know, uh, with Josh, parents were there, with Dave, they were like half there. By the time I got around there, like, I don't know, just make sure you're back home. And even if I spent the night somewhere and then I call the next morning, sorry, mom, I forgot to tell you. It's okay. You're safe. Okay, good. That would have never happened with those guys, right? By the third time you got around to the fourth child, for some of our families that have like eight, nine kids, you probably even forgot their name already. But strategic absence, right, what I love about it is every once in a while, um, you know, so again, I'll, I'll use my kids as an example. I gave my son a task. I, I said, hey, I want you to do this, this, and that. And Trey's like, okay, well, you stay here. I'll go over there and make sure he does it. I said, no, 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 stay here. Let him do it, 
right? He's getting to the age where it's important and helpful for him to learn how to do something on his own. Strategic absence is recognizing that every once in a while stepping back is actually helpful, right? Parents, this is a good, good word for some of our parents because I know that I work in a university and these are like adults, okay, emerging adults, but nonetheless, adult is in the word, okay? Young adult, emerging adult, and we have parents that have called my office to say, hey, what time is chapel? I'm like, 10.30 a.m. Okay, um, is somebody going to wake them up before chapel? And my answer is no. Oh, is it okay if I drive to campus and go to their dorm room and wake them up to make sure they're on time to class? The answer is no, right? Mom, dad, take a step back. It's okay, right? Strategic absence. Strategic absence is providing space and an opportunity to grow and develop when otherwise, if there's too much presence and it's too close, then we don't allow our children or those around us to actually grow because they're used to our presence, always doing things for them, always fixing things for them, always organizing things for them. Every once in a while, we got to step back so they can begin to learn what it means to mature. So, so Matthew chapter 28 is one of these preparation moments of strategic absence. Jesus begins to tell his disciples, hey, you guys, look, I'm back, I'm here, I'm not dead, I'm alive, but I'm getting ready to go to the, the Father. And they're like, no, 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 don't leave. Jesus, don't leave. They didn't want Jesus to leave. How many of you sometimes have been in a moment of worship or in a moment of presence with Christ and you're in prayer and you just don't want that time to end? You're just cherishing the presence and the, the closeness of God in your life and you don't want that moment to end. You ever felt that before? That intimacy, that closeness, right? And so the disciples were feeling that because we're like, we already lost you once at the cross. We don't want to lose you again. And Jesus begins to promise them. He promises them in the gospel of John and he promises them here in the book of Matthew. And he says to them, hey, I'm going to the father, but it's not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. He says, because when I go to the Father, I'm going to be right there, seated at the right hand of the Father, and I'm going to be giving you all the power, all the encouragement, all the presence. Wherever you go, I'm going to be there with you. Don't worry about it, right? So Jesus begins to promise them that his absence is actually going to be a good thing for them to be able to step in and step up, right? That's how we get in. We're not going to get there today, but that's how we get into the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is a series of stories of the disciples trying to figure out what they do when Jesus isn't around. And the cool thing about it is in the story of Acts, we see that they actually stepped up quite a bit, right? But they wouldn't have stepped up if Jesus was around because he would have been doing all of the miracles. He would have been teaching all of the sermons. Instead, in his absence, Peter learned how to preach a sermon. Peter learned how to get somebody up and, and, and teach them how to walk again by miraculously laying hands on them. And so these disciples began to learn what it was like to walk in the power of Christ only after Jesus actually went and ascended into heaven. So strategic absence is just as significant. Amen? So again, we're going to be talking a little bit about Matthew 28. I want to just share a brief little remark on another powerful post-resurrection story. Um, and we might even d dive into this a little bit more another day. But there's a story about uh, these two disciples post-resurrection. Because again, last Sunday we were celebrating uh, the, the resurrection of Christ. We're celebrating Easter, the empty tomb, and salvation, and what that means for us. And, and so there was these two disciples that were going from uh, Jerusalem to a town called Emmaus 
which is about seven miles away. And they were sad. And they were, you know, downcast. And they were talking about everything that had happened and, and rehashing in some ways processing what had taken place. And they were very discouraged. And the resurrected Lord, Jesus, came walking up right alongside them as they were on their way to Emmaus. And, and Jesus, he, he kind of put on a little bit of a, a dramatic flair, a little bit of acting because he came and he says, hey, what are you guys talking about? He knew what they were talking about. Right. And, and uh, they said, oh, you haven't heard? And he says, heard what? What are you guys talking about? Right. And they said, no, you haven't heard about what happened to Jesus? You know, we thought he was the Messiah. We thought he was the Lord. We thought he came to save us. And, and he was just killed on a cross. And now we don't know what to do. Right. And then he continued to ask them questions. And I love this story and this journey to Emmaus that Jesus has with these two disciples because they're trying to figure out what the meaning of the cross meant and what the meaning of the resurrection was. And over the course of walking to Emmaus and then sitting down to a meal, just talking and, and processing and grieving still. And, uh, and through that process, finally, Jesus explained to them how the, how the crucifixion and the resurrection was all part of God's plan and how Jesus isn't dead, but he's alive, right? And so then it says that once they realized after Jesus broke bread and he gave thanks, all of a sudden their eyes were open. They recognized they had been walking with Jesus the whole time and they didn't realize it. So they got up in the middle of the night while it was already dark and they ran seven miles back to Jerusalem to tell everybody that they had just walked with Jesus to Emmaus. And I love that story specifically because it's a good contrast to the story of, of uh, Saul later on in Acts, uh, who later on became called Paul, on his journey to a place called Damascus. So we often look at these two stories hand in hand, the road to Emmaus and the walk to Damascus. On, in, on the walk to Damascus, uh, Saul had an abrupt, radical, immediate conversion experience where all of a sudden he went from being a persecutor of the church to being a follower of Jesus instantaneously, right? And then when we look at the Emmaus story, it takes time. Right? It's conversation, it's questions, it's discouragement, it's doubt. And then all of a sudden, finally, they realize who Jesus was and what he had done. I love those two stories together because God works differently in each of our lives. Right? For some of us, it's a right-on-the-spot moment where all of a sudden the lights turned on and we saw things differently and praise God, we are different now. And it's more of like that Damascus experience. And for others, it might be a slow road. It might be walking and talking and asking questions and doubting and wondering. And, and guess what? Jesus meets us on whatever road that we're on. You don't have to be on the Damascus road. You don't have to be on the Emmaus road. Whatever road that you're on, Jesus can meet you on that road. He has patience. He knows what you're going through. He knows what you're carrying. Right? He, he knows what you're feeling. He knows uh, 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 your future. He knows your past. He knows the, your potential. He knows every single thing about you. Whatever road that you're on, he doesn't need a GPS to figure that one out, right? Hey, I know where you are. I know where you've been. It's okay, right? I love that about Jesus. The interesting thing about it is for whatever reason, we, we hide from God. You know, when we're not where we need to be, we, we want to we be uh, concealed. We want to be hidden. We want to be separated from God. And I want to just encourage anybody here today who might be hiding from God. First of all, you can't hide from God. Secondly, you don't have to hide from God. That's probably the more powerful one. And the reason why you don't, need to ha you don't have to hide from God is because you serve a gracious and merciful God. Right? 
Um, oftentimes I've heard people say, you know what, I want to come back to church, pastor, but before I do that, I got to figure out a few things in my own life because I don't want to show up all messed up like I am right now. Like I want to come back with some things put together. And what I want to encourage you with is to say, he's the one who puts us together, right? We don't, we don't put ourselves together and then show up and say, here you go, Lord, here's the, the bright and shiny, perfect version of me. No, we always show up as the broken version of ourselves, and he meets us wherever it is that we are. And in fact, we can't clean ourselves up apart from the one who cleans, right? We can't, we can't pick ourselves up apart from the one who picks up. We can't heal ourselves apart from the one who heals. So if you're running from God and you're feeling ashamed, I want to encourage you today that you have a loving God who can't wait for you to be reunited in family and fellowship with him and with his church. Amen? All right, so uh, Matthew 28, verse 16 and following it, it reads like this. This is called the Great Commission. Everybody say the Great Commission. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And that's the end of the Gospel of Mark. We just read the last few verses in the last chapter of the oh, excuse me, Gospel of Matthew. That's the end of the Gospel of Matthew. And so this is the Great Commission. This is Jesus, the resurrected Lord, after he had been crucified and rose again on the third day. And he stands before his disciples and he's teaching them and he's giving them instructions about how they are to carry forward the work that he began. Right? This isn't over, Jesus is telling them. In fact, you guys, this is just beginning. They're thinking to themselves, what? What? What do you mean this is just the beginning? Jesus is saying, yep, what we started together, it didn't end at the cross. It didn't even end at the empty tomb. It's not even ending here in Galilee on this mountain, but there is work to be done. And here's the work, and he gives them, he lays out for them their description, their job description, their assignment. You ever love being a part of a good organization or a good team where all of a sudden you come together and, and, and the, whoever's leading that team is able to clearly say, everybody, come on, bring it up really quickly. We're going there, and here's how we're going to get there, and here's who's going to do what, and we're going to get there. And if you have any questions, let's get it back together, and it's organizing together. Jesus brings them all together, and he says, you guys, come here, let's, let's talk through the plan. Here is the plan, and he gives them the Great Commission. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to the end. So let's take a look and break this down really briefly together as we study the Word of God, um, because it's part of actually what the command is, uh, what the commission is uh, including. And so it says here, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee. So if we're a student of the Word, immediately, you, what, what do you begin to think about when you see the word 11 disciples? I hear somebody over here say there's one missing. Did anybody catch that when we were just reading that scripture? Because how many, how many disciples did Jesus call originally? 
He called 12. And so it says here there were 11 that went there. And let's see, let's, let's look at this side. Why were there 11 instead of 12 at this moment during the Great Commission in Matthew 28? Anybody on this side? Because Judas betrayed Jesus, right? Um, and he, he, he strayed away, right? I want, I, just for a moment, I don't want to spend too much time on this one point, but just for a moment, I want to just simply illustrate that 12 had an invitation to be part of this select group of people to carry forward the mission of who Jesus was, the Son of God, the salvation of humankind through the message of the gospel, and only 11 of those 12 stuck around for it. There was one who decided to walk away. And as we come together uh, as the body of Christ, uh, some of us have, have received a call from God to walk with him. We've received salvation and have confessed of our sin and began walking with Jesus and studying the word and learning what it means to worship him and have a life of prayer. But for whatever reason, something got in our way and caused us to go astray. Something distracted us and caused us to forget about all the things that God had done. Right? And so I want to use this little moment in Matthew 28 where it says 11 disciples instead of 12 to remind you and me today not to be distracted from the call of God on our life. Don't let anything distract us from the call of God on our life. Don't let temptation distract us from the call of God on our life. Don't let discouragement distract us from the call of God on our life. Don't let circumstances that may come our way that are unfavorable, that cause us to be, to be hurt, to distract us from the call of God on our life. Don't even let, I'm going to go here on this one, okay? Don't even let how you may have been treated by somebody else who's called by the name of Christ as a church member cause you to be distracted from the call of God on your life. Because I've heard people say, you know what, I'm done with it, man, because there's too many people in that church that hurt me. There's too many people that said this or did that, and I just can't trust anymore. And what I would say is don't rely upon the faithfulness of a human to dictate your relationship with God. Because we're all imperfect people trying to get it worked out. The only one who's perfect is God. So if you've been hurt by somebody in the church, if you've been hurt by the church itself, if you've been hurt by bad teaching before, if you've been hurt by, by, by practices that are unhealthy within a particular church, don't take it out on Jesus. Okay? And we would love to be the kind of place that says, Lord, help us to understand, even as we're imperfect, trying to follow you, what it means to be put back together again. Right? And so... so 11 disciples instead of 12 is a great reminder to us. Don't allow anything to cause us to be distracted from pursuing our relationship with God. Amen? So it says here in verse 16 that the 11 disciples went to Galilee. Again, Galilee is where the call of the disciples took place. Jesus went out, found these fishermen on a boat, and he says, come over here. You're going to stop fishing for fish, and now we're going to start fishing for men, right? We're going to start fishing for people. We're going to start bringing people in so that they can, they can be a good catch for God, right? They could be a glorious catch for the Lord. Who are, those who are wandering in life and discouraged all of a sudden now can be brought into relationship with God. And so Jesus Jesus tells them to meet him, 
post-resurrection in the very place that, where, where they started. And I always love seeing moments like that in Scripture where God, in some ways, is calling us to be reminded of all the things that God has done, right? There's a reason why Jesus said, meet me in Galilee, so that when they get to the shores, they could be reminded of the Sermon on the Mount, everything that Jesus taught them in Matthew chapter 5. They could be reminded of when they were out on that sea and Jesus said, hey, don't worry about this storm. It's okay. God, my, my Father, is in charge of all creation. Peace be still, he said to the storm. And all of a sudden, things calm down, which reminds us not just that Jesus is a great meteorologist or can, can figure out what the weather's doing, but it reminds us that in the storms of our lives, he's the one who can give us peace, right? So, so Jesus called them to meet back in Galilee for a reason, so that all that nostalgia of what they had seen him do can come back into their hearts once again. So I want to encourage you today, let this be a reminder to simply say, don't forget about all that God has done for you. Talk about it. Write it down. Do not allow it to be a distant memory that all of a sudden loses the meaning and value of all the things that God has done in your life. The miracles that he's done. The moments where he encouraged you and lifted you back up. The moments where he told you and gave you a name and reminded you of your identity. Don't forget about all the things that your God has done. I, I believe that's a big reason why Jesus said, meet me in Galilee, so that all of a sudden they could be reminded of all the things they saw Jesus do, so that he could tell them in Matthew 28, now keep doing it. Keep it going forward, right? And so he says, he says in, in, in verse 16, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Verse 17, when they saw him, they worshiped him. Right? When they saw him, they worshiped him. It's a special moment. They bowed down. They're worshiping Jesus. And then the phrase here, here says, but some doubted. Don't you love how the gospel of Matthew, Matthew here as the author, gives us that little cue. He could have kept that phrase out, but instead decided to include the phrase that said, and some doubted. Right? It doesn't sound as powerful. It would sound a lot more powerful if it said, and all of them believed. Right? And all of them had no fear, and all of them didn't worry about one thing, and all of them had no doubts. It doesn't say that. It says that they were, they were, they were there present, and, and in that moment existed both worship and doubt. Do you believe that, that we, could, we could walk into a space where worship and doubt coexist together? In fact, briefly, I want to share this. You can't have faith without a little bit of doubt. Some of you might be saying, wait a second, Pastor Koba, that makes no sense because I've been taught that those two things are opposites of each other. And what I would say is faith, by definition, is trust in moments of uncertainty. Because if you've got no uncertainty, then you've got no faith. That's just called knowledge. That's called a fact. And if you've got knowledge and a fact, then you've got no faith because faith is trust in the midst of uncertainty. So in other words, you've got to have a little bit of doubt in order to have a lot of bit of faith you got to have a little bit of curiosity in order to be able to say, but God, even though I can't figure this out, I'm going to trust you anyway. God, even though I can't see how this thing is going to end, I believe that somehow, someway, it's going to work out good, so I'm putting my life in your hands. You can't have faith without a little bit of doubt. So if you're wondering to yourself today, man, is there any room for me in the church or in leadership or in ministry? Because sometimes I have doubts. And what I would say is, welcome to the club. The cool thing is, is the more we learn to trust Jesus, then we, the more we learn how to fully surrender our doubts into his hands. Jesus, I don't even know about that, but I trust you. You got this, right? We don't need to know all the answers in order to have perfect faith, right? 
We simply say, Lord, in the midst of not having answers, I trust you because your track record shows that you're a good God. You're a faithful God. You know what I need. Even, even when I ask you for something, you tell me no because you knew I didn't need that. So, Lord Jesus, I'm going to trust you with a yes. I'm going to trust you with a no. I'm going to trust you with a maybe. I'm going to trust you with a not yet. And I'm going to trust you with a silence. That's how our faith is developed. Somebody say amen. amen. So I love that when the disciples got together, it's like this glorious moment. He's alive. He's got holes in his hands. He's teaching them all kinds of stuff. They're worshiping him. And then it says, and some of them doubted. <laughs> I like it. It's just keeping it real. Thank you, Matthew. Appreciate it. Right? Keeping it real. They worshiped him and some doubted. It's all good. Amen? I want you to hold out your hand like this. Imagine that in your hand, hold some of the questions that you still have about God, about faith, about scripture, about the church, about life. You got some doubts right there. You've got some questions. You've got some curiosity. And I want you to repeat this with me. Lord, I give you my doubt. Build my faith. In Jesus' name. Amen. It's okay to acknowledge that we have some as long as we know where to place them. Amen? Don't allow your doubt to draw you further away from God. Allow your doubt to lean you closer into God. Because he knows what to do with your doubt better than anybody else. Amen? All right, so it says, uh, they worshiped him, some doubted. Then it says, Jesus came to them and said, in verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus begins to give them instruction and he tells them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Why is he telling them about this authority? Why is he saying, hey, there, I've got power, you guys. Why is he giving that to his disciples? He's letting them know that all authority has been given to him so that when he commissions them, he's extending his authority onto them to carry that authority forward, right? There's two ways that we mess up this authority thing in our lives as disciples of Jesus. One is that we don't realize we have it. We walk discouraged and defeated in life when in reality, we belong to God. We're children of God. Our Father is the creator of the universe. Jesus died for us on the cross. He rose again. That resurrection power is flowing through our veins. The first mistake that we make is we imagine that we don't have the authority or the power to live a life that's, that's according to God's purposes and God's plan. And I want to remind you that the very power that raised Jesus from the dead is available for you today, right now. So that's the first mistake is not recognizing that we have access to that authority. The second mistake is trying to think that that authority gives us uh, freedom and power to do all kinds of things that are not consistent with the plans and purposes of God, right? All of a sudden we get enamored by that power and then we want to misuse that power instead of saying, Lord, however it is that you want to equip me with your authority and your power, Lord, use me in such a way that brings honor and glory to your name so that people might know who you are, so that your name will be glorified and lifted up, so that the blind can see, so that the healed can walk, so that the lame can walk and be healed. Lord, allow me to walk in that authority and power in such a way that brings honor and glory to your name. Right. Oftentimes, one of the ways we mess it up is we say, Lord, now because I have all this authority and power, um, turn my Civic into a Lamborghini. 
right? Like all of a sudden it's like, okay, come on, Jesus, I want this power, right? And we have to recognize what is it that God has equipped us to do, right? What is it that God has equipped us to do? So the answer is actually in verse 19. It says, because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, verse 19, therefore go and make disciples. That makes sense? So Jesus is saying, I've got all the authority on earth and in heaven. And I'm going to give it to you so that you could go and make disciples. In other words, Jesus is saying, this is the proper way to walk in my power and authority is to go and make other disciples. How do we make disciples? What is a disciple? A disciple, by definition, uh, uh, simply is a student or a learner. It's one who begins to learn something new. And so they follow a teacher. Who's the teacher? It's Jesus. And so Jesus is telling his disciples, go and teach others what it means to follow me as their teacher, just as you have followed me uh, and I've been your teacher. Now let's go and make other disciples, learners of Jesus, so that they can learn how to live according to the purposes of God, according to the will of God. That is what making disciples means, right? How do we do that? We do that by studying the word of God together. We do that by worshiping together. We do that by sharing with others what they have access to. You don't have to live in that lifestyle anymore, but God has greater plans for your life. You don't have to continue down that path anymore because there's nothing but death and destruction over there. But God has a plan for your life this way. Walk with me this way. Let's learn what it means to really discover why God created you. And all of a sudden, these things begin to take shape. Your gifts and your talents and your passions and your abilities and your past and your present and your future and your culture. All these things God wants to bring together to show us what it looks like to walk according to his plan. That is the invitation to the discipleship journey. Some people are like, well, I didn't go to seminary. I didn't go to Bible school. I'm not an expert in teaching. How is it that I could participate with the disciples in the church in this discipleship process? The best way to do that is be, we become a discipleship community. How many of you have been, raise your hand if there's somebody else in this room that has encouraged your faith in Jesus. Raise your hand. Look around, look around, look around. So this is evidence that we don't do this discipleship thing individually. In fact, we borrow from each other. Man, I, I've learned how to pray because of people in the body of Christ. I've learned how to read and interpret scripture because of people in the body of Christ. I've learned how to worship because of people in the body of Christ. I've learned how to go through hardship and still put my faith in God, even in hard circumstances because of the testimonies of people in this body of Christ. So my discipleship has been impacted by others because of your faithfulness. And hopefully mine is doing the same for others. And we continue that together to form a community of disciples. To walk in and live out. Matthew chapter 28. Go and make disciples. I love that word go. Let's not move too quickly past that word go. In verse 19. Therefore go. Somebody say go. I always find it interesting that when Jesus comes back and he begins to teach as a resurrected savior, he doesn't say, therefore, stay. Right? Uh, Jesus doesn't say, all right, everybody, bring it up. Here's a plan. I want you guys to go nowhere and to keep all of this good news to yourself. Okay? Just keep it to yourself. Don't tell anybody. Early on in his ministry, he would often tell people, don't tell anybody about what I did for you, right? That's called the messianic secret. The messianic secret is out. In fact, it was so out that they threw him on a cross. 
And he got up again on the third day. And so it's no longer a messianic secret. The secret is out. And now Jesus is saying the time to hold back the good news is over. Now, go and tell as many people as possible about all the things that God has done. So verse 19 and 28 says, therefore, one person over here, I like it, I like it, I like it, right here. Even through the rails, you're paying attention. It says, therefore, go. It says, therefore, it says, therefore, go. So some of you are like, Pastor Koba, okay, I'm trying to follow you here in this Matthew 28 Great Commission message, and I'm trying to figure out application in my life, and so I'm reading, therefore, go. Does that mean I now have to sell my house and move out of Harbor City or move out of Hawthorne or Carson, wherever it is, Long Beach? Does that mean I need to, I need to leave in order to be faithful to the Great Commission? Going is a mindset. Going is a mindset. It's the opposite of staying, right? The opposite of holding it in. The opposite of saying, I've achieved salvation. Yes, now I can just hold on to this as tight as I can until I die. And this is how I get to heaven. And what Jesus would say is, no, actually, the invitation is to say, whatever it is that you've experienced, go and let others experience the same thing. Talk about it. Write about it. Share about it, right? Live about it. And that's the best way that we could go. It doesn't mean that we necessarily need to leave. Some people are called to be missionaries and to go and travel across the world. Praise God. We support our missionaries regularly for that very reason. And some of us are called to go next door. Some of us are called to go to the next cubicle. Some of us are called to go to the classroom, to the field, to the locker room. Some of us are called to go to this college and university. Some of us are called to go wherever it is that we're going is a mindset to recognize that wherever it is that you are, God sent you there to be a witness and a light and salt in this world that doesn't know the hope of Jesus Christ so that we could live in such a way that begins to cause people to ask questions. What is it that that person carries and why is it that they approach life so differently than everybody else I see and we give the answer the answer is because Jesus lives inside of me that's why so going is a mindset that means we wake up in the morning we say all right Lord how you gonna how you gonna use me today how can I be faithful today at the little league field how can I be faithful today in the neighborhood how can I be faithful today Lord because going is a mindset so verse 19 says therefore go and make disciples of all nations. I don't love the NIV's translation of that word. The, the word here in the Great Commission in Greek is ethne. Somebody say ethne. It's where we get the word ethnic. So ethne refers to peoples, which can refer to cultures, right? So in other words, Matthew 28, first and foremost, before it starts talking about politics uh, like nations, using a word like nations, when it says ethne, what it's saying is there should be no culture that doesn't hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Every language, every people, every skin color, whatever their uh, nation of birth is, it doesn't matter. The gospel reaches every single one. It's not just for white Americans that speak English, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ is bigger than even European evangelical Christianity. The gospel of Jesus Christ extends to every color on the planet. And if there's a color that we haven't heard about yet, the gospel extends to that one too. Go and make disciples of all different kinds of people is what the Bible's saying here. I love that, right? Nations is, is eh, 
It doesn't really give us all that connotation, but when we look at ethne, what it's saying is, make sure you don't keep the gospel bottled up with Jews, is what Jesus is saying. Go and talk to the Samaritans, and then keep moving out. Go to the Egyptians, go out to the Greeks, go out to the Romans, right? Go out to the Spaniards, and if there's people on the other side of that ocean we call the Atlantic, then take the gospel that way as well, right? So the invitation is essentially saying, make sure that every different kind of people has an opportunity to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. All ethne. Uh, therefore, go and make disciples of all peoples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We did that today. Praise God. Isn't it cool to see the, the, the Bible in action? And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So again, he promises his presence, even with his absence. He's calling us to go and be part of the disciple-making process of all people. God's called us to that. This is the exciting thing that we get to celebrate on this Sunday uh, removed from Resurrection Sunday. It's the invitation for the ongoing work of God. It didn't stop on Sunday at the empty tomb. The empty tomb just unlocked a brand new future for all of us to live according to his plans and purposes and allow others, all kinds of others, to experience the goodness of God in their own life. So let me finish with this note, and then we'll pray and we'll be dismissed. The note that I want to finish with is by simply saying this. Don't minimize the power and importance of your testimony. Don't underestimate how much God can do by simply talking about what God has done in your life. Some people might say, well, I'm not really gifted at public speaking. Like, I always get afraid in front of people. Yeah, but do you call people on the phone? Yeah. Okay, tell them that way. Oh, I don't really do phone calls anymore. That's old school. Do you text people? Yeah, tell them that way. Right? Do you do Instagram? Yeah, tell them that way. Like, God has given us so many different tools and ways to communicate the goodness of what he's done in our life. There might be somebody today... In your circle of influence, whether it's on social media or in your neighborhood or at work or at school or wherever, who is wrestling with the very same thing that God has delivered you from. And they don't know how to get over that hump. They don't know how to get through that chaos. They don't know how to survive that battle. But you do because God's done it in your life. And you could either choose to keep it to yourself because of fear or embarrassment. Or you could say, Lord, use my life. Use my story, use my testimony, use my challenge, use my victory, use whatever it is that you want to use so that somebody else can find freedom and find power, find healing, deliverance, and a new identity in you. Lord, use me in whatever way you want. Don't make it about you. Oh, but Pastor, I, nope, you've already made it about you. But what, if, no, nope, you already made it about you. Make it about what God has done in your life, and a vision of what that would look like for others to find the same kind of healing, transformation, forgiveness, reconciliation that you've experienced. And if you focus on that, well, then guess what? Your mouth's just going to open up. Hey, let me tell you about something God did five years ago. 
I haven't told very many people, but for whatever reason, I feel like you need to hear this. Hey, let me tell you what happened to me 25 years ago when I was lost and I didn't know where I was going. And all of a sudden, somebody invited me to this thing and I heard this one message and I realized that there's all kinds of love surrounding me and I never recognized that before. And from that day forward, I've never spent a day not walking in the love of God. Somebody needs to hear that message. I used to be addicted on drugs, man. I couldn't get off it on my own. And every single time I tried, I kept going back and kept going back. And then all of a sudden, something happened. Somebody prayed for me. Somebody walked with me. Somebody encouraged me. Somebody challenged me. Somebody kept me accountable. And all of a sudden now, I'm standing right here 10 years clean by the grace of God. Somebody needs to hear that message. Right? My family was, we were going through some hardship. My marriage was, was on the rocks. And all of a sudden, somebody began praying for me. And I began to figure out there were some things in me that I hadn't worked on. And I began to work on those things and, and, and ask for forgiveness and, and show up every single day and be a faithful father or a mother or a wife or a husband. And all of a sudden now, I look at my family together and I'm giving God praise and thanks because I could have lost all of that. But, but for the grace of God who saw me and walked me through that process, I give him all the glory. Somebody needs to hear that story. And this sanctuary is filled with not just one. Each of you can carry carry hundreds of stories in your own life and in your own heart. Who's hearing them and who needs to hear them? That's Matthew 28, church. Matthew 28 is, therefore, go and let others hear about what it's like to be a student of Jesus. Right? Throw them in the water. Have them get baptized. Leave all that junk behind. Come on out brand new and clean. Teach him what it's like to follow real truth and not false truth that the world's putting out there. This is what Matthew 28 is encouraging us to do. It's not a guilt trip to say you're not doing a good enough job as a Christian. It's an invitation to say how much lighter would this world be if we lived out the gospel in our daily lives and weren't afraid to allow the stories of what God has done in us to spill over into other people's lives. Again, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus being glorified. Amen? Would you stand, uh, if you're able, this morning so we can close in prayer? Give God thanks. Can we just celebrate again those who are baptized today? Give God praise for each of those stories. Amen. And for those who are baptized, tell the story. Come on, tell it. I encourage you. Pick out five people who you weren't already planning on telling about what God did in your life and tell them what you did today and why you did it. Okay? Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you were good. Um, that you are the one who um, uh, uh, walks in and extends to us resurrection power to live according to your plan and according to your purposes. Uh, We recognize today, Lord, that you have been faithful, that you have been good, that you meet us even in our doubts, even in our circumstances. And we thank you that you challenge us to not be comfortable or complacent in our own lives, but to operate under the um, command of go, to go wherever it is that you've sent us, Uh, to make disciples of all kinds of people, um, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that you have commanded us. Walk with us, Lord, as we build this community of disciples so that more and more others are able to hear this life-changing message of the love of God and your plans in our lives. We give you today, and we thank you for a day of celebration and of victory. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people say Amen. God bless you, church.